Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Our passage for this morning is from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Amen. Please be seated. We continue our study of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It goes all the way to chapter 5, verse 10. We are only isolating this paragraph for the purpose of convenience, but it does lead us into a much larger section. I have a terrible habit. I drive where I look. So if you're driving with me and I seem to see something off to the side, I say, hey, look at that, and I usually end up going that way. It's not necessarily a problem for me, but I have heard from those who drive with me that it is somewhat problematic. It's not enjoyable for them. If we look at Jesus... We follow Jesus. Our bodies go where our eyes go. And the author of Hebrews knows this. Thus, he says to us in our passage, consider Jesus. Look at Jesus. I also remember as a parent and now as a grandparent being with my children or a grandchild in a difficult situation which finds them fearful. And during those moments, I would tell them, I would grab their face, I would have them look at me, and perhaps you've experienced this same situation, I would cradle their face and have them look at me and say, look at me, look at me. And hopefully by looking at me, their fears would be calmed. Well, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's cradling the face of his congregation and he's saying, look at me. But in saying, look at me, he's saying, let's look at Jesus. And so this morning, we hope in our study of Hebrews, it should be quite natural is that we together look at Jesus And why? Because looking at Jesus enables us to put life in perspective. It calms our fears because I know if you're like me, you might not be anxious now, but you were yesterday and perhaps you will be tomorrow. But in those moments, what we need to do is consider Jesus, to look at Jesus. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, this morning, as we consider Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 6, we need your presence. We need the Spirit. We know that he is here. And now may the Holy Spirit gently cradle our faces and turn our eyes towards Jesus. We, like sheep, are prone to wander. Help us to follow the great shepherd of our souls. Today, our struggles are great. But Jesus is greater. Teach us this morning to consider him. Grant to us clarity that we lack. Fill our cups. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You'll notice that our text begins with the word therefore, that therefore forces us to remember what we have just considered in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, it speaks of Jesus as God's son, that Jesus Christ is the full and final revelation to man, that he has supremacy over all of creation, particularly the angels. In chapter 2, then, it celebrates his incarnation, his humanity, and through his incarnation, he becomes for us our high priest. He mediates between us and God, and he offers himself as a propitiatory sacrifice. Through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, our Lord Jesus Christ satisfies the justice of God and stops the wrath of God. Thus, the one who is described as higher than the angels in chapter 1 and becoming lower than the angels in chapter 2, we are to consider. There's an invitation in our text. The word consider is, by the way, the first command or imperative in the book of Hebrews. There are two imperatives in chapters 1 and 2, but they are quoting an Old Testament passage. Now, for the first time, he speaks to his audience, and he says in verse 1, consider Jesus. And the word consider is a, a word that is a compound in that it has a double prefix, and it intensifies the word. And the prefix itself adds energy to an already demanding idea. Consider Jesus. It's much more than just us for this moment thinking on him. It's allowing that thought to dominate our thinking, to dominate our minds. And what we see here in Consider Him is that if Jesus is, and it's the reason why we had chapter 1, 1 through 4 read, and then chapter 2, 14 through 18 read. But if Jesus is the appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world, and if he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and if he is upholding all things by the word of his power, and if he has made purification of sins, thereby sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and if his name as son is more excellent than the angels, then consider him. If indeed all these things are true that we have read in chapters 1 and 2, consider him. Thus we have this invitation to consider him. But within the invitation, there are two descriptives. First, who are we? A description of who we are. Who are we? And then secondly, who is he? But let's begin with who are we? Notice how this passage begins in verse 1. Therefore, in light of what we have just read, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Three things are noted within the passage, and I think it's important, especially considering the audience to whom he speaks. He speaks to an audience that is pressed. He speaks to an audience that is being tempted. They are being persecuted. Potential imprisonment, potential martyrdom is facing them. And he describes these people to whom he speaks as holy brothers and sisters, as partakers or sharers in a heavenly calling. He describes them as those who confess Jesus as the apostle and high priest. That's who they are. I find the idea of those in Christ as holy captivating. There is always this debate as to whether or not this description is based on one's position in Christ, something the Spirit of God does to us, or our performance in the world. Are we holy because of what we do, or are we holy because of who he is? Now, we say we are holy because of who he is, thus, this is what we do. The Spirit of God given to us works in us and through us this holiness. 
But in our passage, we are holy because of who God is. You and I cannot act holy unless we are holy. Position in Christ produces our performance in this world. The performance that we do cannot produce this position. The message of pure grace does not enable sin to flourish. This unbound grace binds unbridled sin. It's because of who he is that we are now a holy people. Recently, I read a critique of a of preaching grace entitled Radical Grace. They would describe our preaching, our theological DNA as radical. Like the word awesome, that was so awesome. You eat that double bacon cheeseburger, curly fries, and you go, man, that was awesome. Well, the word radical can be equally overused in assigned objects that are neither awesome nor radical. But grace, the word grace, is not one of the objects or acts that can be overstated. How can we read of Jesus in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2? Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. Jesus Christ makes himself lower than the angels so that he would act as our great high priest and offer himself up as a propitiatory sacrifice. And how can we then not describe that as radical grace? The God of Hebrews 1 lowers himself in Hebrews 2. And that is radical. Not only are, is his audience described as holy, but they are also described as partakers or share in partners in a heavenly calling. It is interesting that the author of Hebrews uses that word partner more than any other New Testament author. And it simply means one who shares. And the author of Hebrews, in his usage of the word, describes this multitude that no one can number. You and I, although at times we might appear isolated, are a part of a much larger multitude that cannot be numbered. That's why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, will describe this multitude that cannot be numbered. We have this cloud of witnesses. And again, think of the audience that he addresses. Those whose backs are against the wall being pressed, they feel isolated and abandoned. And the author reminds them, no, you're partakers you share in a heavenly calling there is this multitude of people with you even though you can't see them they are there and the third thing he does in describing his audience is describes them as those who are confessing jesus as apostle and high priest and the word confessing is interesting in our passage in verse one because the word confession is that word homologao it's the same word found in chapter one verse nine of first john John is bent toward this idea of confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It confesses that Jesus is not from God. Anyone that does that is not born of God. There's this idea of confession. You and I, as the people of God, are the confessors. Do we right now confess that Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest? He is the apostle sent from God. Thus, we must listen to what he says He is the high priest who acts in behalf of us and draws us toward him. But we are confessors. So who are we? Well, chapter 3, verse 1 begins with three statements. We are a holy people. We are a holy people. We are those who partake and share in a heavenly calling. We are surrounded by a multitude of people who share in this. And we are confessors. We confess that Jesus Christ is both apostle and high priest. We are, we are this. But who is he? 
Well, Jesus is described as the apostle and high priest. The two titles intentionally hearken back to the two main points that the author has already made in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. As the apostle, God speaks in the Son, so we listen to him, thus consider him. As the high priest, Jesus sanctifies, helps, and makes atonement for his people, thus consider him. So in verse 1, we have this invitation. And what is the invitation? The invitation is that we would consider him. It describes for us who we are and who he is. And now we have this illustration. And the illustration points us toward Moses. And what he says here is important. And why does our Lord, and again, if you, if you notice verse 2, it says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And, and I'm going to read this to you because what he does initially is he compares Moses and Jesus. And then he contrasts Jesus with Moses. But he compares Moses to Jesus. And why is our Lord compared to and then contrasted with Moses? Well, because Moses in Judaism is a spiritual giant. And we'll hear more of this in the coming weeks. But the author speaks of prophets. He speaks of angels. And now he speaks of Moses. And to claim that Jesus is better than Moses would have been startling to the Jew. Yet that is what the author does. He compares Jesus and Moses. The New Testament is very clear as to the role Moses plays in preparing us for and pointing us to to Jesus, to the Messiah. And listen to what the text says, because there's this contrast taking place, but there's intent. What's taking place? Well, if you remember some of these passages that I'll point out to you, perhaps you'll see what's taking place. In Luke chapter 16, you have the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And it says, then I beg you, the rich man says, I beg you, Father, in verse 27 of Luke 16, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham says to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. See, Moses is preparing us for and pointing us to Messiah. And so we get to the New Testament, and the New Testament points us back to Moses. Why? Because Moses is telling us of Jesus. But he said in verse 30, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Moses has a distinct role. There's a contrast taking place. Moses has a place in the one story. And what is Moses doing? Moses, in reading him, points us to and prepares us for Jesus. The Jews were persecuting Jesus. We know that as we read the Gospels because he healed on the Sabbath. And in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47, we read in verse 39 a very familiar verse. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about me. So when you and I read our Old Testament, what we should be reading of is Jesus. He goes on, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 45, but listen to what verse 45 says. And Jesus says this to his audience. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
So we clearly see why Moses is being accented in our text. Moses is preparing us for and pointing us to Jesus. And then when Paul defended himself before King Agrippa and Festus in Acts 26, it says in verse 19 of Acts 26, So King Agrippa, I do not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, verse 22, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. Verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer, that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And I'm just going to read verse 24 because I think it's somewhat humorous. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You are absolutely crazy. Your great learning is driving you mad. And why? Because he simply reminded them of what Moses and the prophets had already said. Moses was preparing them and pointing to Jesus. So you have this introduction of Moses and the point being that Moses isn't bad, only that Jesus is better. That's what we have. Moses calls us to consider Jesus. And so then the contrast comes into play. And I'm simply going to list them for us without going into great detail. But you have this invitation, consider Jesus. You have this illustration of Moses. Moses is part of the one story of God. He prepares us for and points us to Jesus. And now the contrast. There are five statements made. Moses had glory, but Jesus has more glory. Moses was a building, but Jesus is the builder. Moses is a servant in the house. Jesus is a son over the house. Moses is in, but Jesus is over. Moses was faithful. Jesus is faithful. What is the implication of this for the hearer? And remember the audience to whom he speaks. They're Jewish. They have elevated Moses. Moses and the prophets prepared us for and pointed us to Jesus. Thus, all of the pictures that we read of in the Old Testament, all the prophecies, patterns, and promises, they all find their conclusion in Jesus. Moses, like everything else in the Old Testament, functioned as a sign, as a shadow. And we'll see this in a moment of which Jesus is the substance. If the Old Testament is a type Jesus is the anti-type. In whatever stage of the story Moses represents, Jesus is the next step. And we've said, if you're reading only the Old Testament, you can understand what it is saying, but you need really the New Testament to finish the story. And it doesn't say in our passage that Moses is bad, only that Jesus is better. Christ is indeed our hope. He is our confidence. So we have this invitation in verse 1, consider Jesus. In light of what we have just read in chapters 1 and 2, we come to chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. He then gives us this illustration. He compares Jesus to Moses, and then he contrasts Jesus to Moses. Moses has a place. He has a role. What is Moses' role? He prepares us for and points us to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. 
Jesus has more glory. Jesus is the builder. Jesus is the son. He is over the house and he is faithful. Again, it's not to say that Moses is bad, only that Jesus is better. Then what are the implications of this? Verse 6. Notice it says in verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. And then we have this if statement. And the if has a tendency to make us itch. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. When we read verse 6, we need to understand how it functions in light of verse 1. Let us for a moment remember to whom the author speaks. And I've attempted to remind you of this throughout. They are predominantly Messianic Jews. They are Jews who have come to Jesus. It's not excluding the Gentile, but it's predominantly a Jewish audience that has believed in Jesus. And again, that is massively radical to the Jewish mind. And those Jews who are saved are being persecuted, thus pressured to return to Judaism. And if you read the book of Acts, you read of that pressure. Those who believed in Jesus were being persecuted. And the pressure to drift was constant and increasing. Thus, in chapter 2, 1 through 4, don't drift. Many of them are losing their connection to their families and society. They're being ostracized. They're being put out. They're being shunned. Some are even being imprisoned and others are being killed. And the weight to capitulate and abandon Christ is overwhelming. What are they to do? And, and all of us would like to think that if we were placed in a context where they were demanding us to recant, to deny Christ, or they would kill us, we would like to think that we would remain faithful unto the end. None of us know how, will we, how we will respond in such an incredible situation, but we would like to think we'll hold fast to Christ. The author in that context, writing to that audience, says, Consider Jesus. Hold fast to your confidence in Christ. That's the latter part of verse 6. Hold fast to Christ. The word confidence speaks of boldness in verse 6. It occurs four times in Hebrews. And it's often translated as boldness. We are, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our boldness, our confidence. Do you believe in Jesus? Hold fast. Don't quit. And the word boasting can often be translated as glory. The hope we have is Jesus. Is Jesus as our high priest? Is Jesus as our apostle? And we have confidence in him. I don't have confidence in myself that in the moment of temptation, in the moment of that kind of pressure that I hold fast. But I have confidence in Christ I have confidence that he is my apostle, that he is my high priest. Our boasting is of him. He is our hope. And thus we are his house. Thus we don't quit. We don't quit. If first one is true, if we are the holy, if we are sharing or partakers in the heavenly calling, if we are confessing that Jesus is both apostle and high priest, then... This is what is true. This is what is true. When the children of Israel left Egypt, and you'll remember the story, at one point they found themselves standing before the Red Sea and the Egyptian army in pursuit. They were panicky and they were fearful. You might remember the account. They had just left Egypt and they were moving toward the promised land. And before them was the Red Sea. And behind them was the pressing Egyptian army. 
In Exodus 14, verses 10 through 14, it reads as follows. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became frightened. And again, look at that scenario in in Exodus 14. Look at the audience to whom he writes in Hebrews. And they were frightened, very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Remember, Moses is preparing us for and pointing us to Jesus. Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12 of Exodus 14. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Just stop. What God said through Moses to his people is the same thing God says through the author of Hebrews to his people whose backs are against the wall and the enemy is rushing in. Do not fear. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. These people were pressed. Hold fast Christ. Consider him. You and I are not aware of each other's pressure, each other's anxiety, each other's temptation, each other's trial. I only know that you have them. And what is God saying to us collectively? Do not fear. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. Consider Jesus. The God-man is interceding in your behalf. He's got this. He will handle this. Hold fast to Christ. From this passage, let us lay hold of certain truths that are necessary. Right now, you might find yourself deserted by your family and friends because you named the name of Jesus. I came from a Roman Catholic background, and I was raised in a very uh, good home, and it was very religious. And when I accepted Jesus Christ as a 17-year-old, my mother could not figure out what happened. She assumed that I was abducted by an alien. And many of you share the same experience. When you got saved, your family looked at you and they thought, oh my word, this guy has gotten religious. And that's what happens. And right now, you might find yourself deserted by your family and friends because you named the name of Jesus. Right now, your spouse might be distant from you because you named the name of Jesus. And the Spirit of God says to you right now, do not fear, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Consider Jesus. God doesn't always deliver you in the way you want. I want every story of my life to end up with a double portion. But sometimes what you end up doing is simply dying. When you read the end of Hebrews chapter 11, it says many received their dead children back again. But others were cut asunder. Not every story ends with a double portion. And what we want is God to deliver us in the way we want. But what he does is always deliver you in the way you need. Secondly, as you consider Jesus, don't forget who you are in all of this. See, you are holy. 
You are a partaker in the heavenly calling. You are a confessor. Your confidence and your boasting is in him. The third thing, never stop considering Jesus. You know, I ask myself the question, how can I exhort you to consider Jesus? And part of that is you came to church. When you come to church, we call you to consider him. Think on these things. And how do we as a church family consider him? Well, we go to church. We gather with other believers. We see those who are holy. We see those who are equally sharing in the heavenly calling. We hear and see other confessors. That's what we are doing. We invite you to reread the text. Listen to it online. Listen to it repeatedly. Think about it. Meditate on it. Talk about it. Respond to it. Establish priorities. Sometimes you have to make the hard call. And that hard call that you make for yourself or family is very contrary to the world around you. They do not get it. They do not see it. They do not understand it. But because you consider him, you make the hard call. And when you make the hard call and you consider him, expect tribulation. Expect it. Our brothers and sisters who we pray for on a Sunday, they're living this. Expect it. And we'll see how in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, that that tribulation is to be seen as coming from a good and gracious God. And then finally, God calls us to remain faithful to Christ. Don't quit confessing him. Our only hope is Jesus. If he is not our hope, if he is not our confidence, if he is not our boast, then all is lost. But he invites us to simply consider him. We must never forget him. Today, God, Jesus, cradles our face in his hands, and he says, look at me. Look at me. And the question for us is simply this, will we? Will we consider him? And as we consider him, how can we encourage each other to do the same? We come together this morning to do one thing, and that's to consider him. This passage calls us to do such a thing. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, it is impossible for any one of us to get in the other person's mind or situation or circumstances, but we know of one who does. The Holy Spirit right now knows exactly what is taking place in each one of our lives. And he alone is the one who can arrest our attention, arrest our anxiety, arrest the situation in which we exist, and he can calm it. And thus we ask that in this moment we would consider Jesus, that we would look at Jesus. Father, the entire storyline of Scripture points us to Jesus. And with the author of Hebrews, we confess that Jesus is our apostle and high priest. Now we would ask that we would listen to him. May we look to him. May we not falter in our steps as we continue to look to him. In our present struggles, may we consider him. Today we bow before our merciful and faithful high priest, knowing that he is interceding in our behalf. He is imputed to us righteousness 
that the Spirit of God who lives in us is working through us to those around us. We consider Him. Thank you for making us acceptable. Thank you, Father, that you are accessible, that we can come to you in our time of need and find help because the throne that we approach is one of grace. We thank you for all that you've done in our behalf. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.